This episode is dedicated to my community who has had an amazing response to the events going on around the world and to BG Charles C. Ballou. And the team at the Innocence Project for their unmatched dedication to the liberation of the wrongfully accused. I'm Rebecca. I'm Sydney. Welcome Welcome to to the Something Something or Other podcast. Podcast. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? Hi, Sydney. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I know it's been a little tense lately with everything. Yes, it's been intense, but... You know, I think that means that things are happening and moving and conversations are being had, which is better than it being boring. You know, we got to deal with the discomfort. Absolutely. Discomfort now for comfort for everyone later. Exactly. Well said. We have some fun follow-ups to do before we jump into the the meat of the, the meal here. What, what? Yes. The first being that Baby's real name is Francis Baby Houseman. Houseman is a bad last name. So for those of you who are questioning the dirty dancing names and the taxonomy of Baby and Baby in the Corner, it's Francis Baby Houseman, which is not a great last name, as you astutely pointed out. It's just not a good nickname. Francis Baby Houseman sounds like Francis Bacon Houseman. Like, it's (laughs) it's not good. It's not good. Okay, I also have a follow-up. Basically, throughout the entire other episode, except for at the very end, when I realized by actually using my eyes to read our outline, um... The Mummy movie that I so adore was actually made in 1999 instead of 1997. I will now forever remember. It was all a ruse. <laughs> I know, I'll never forget <laughs> it now. But yeah, so that is our little follow-up thing. Nothing like accidentally saying the wrong thing to make you remember the right thing forever. Right there. Or worst case scenario, you remember that you said the wrong thing, but Absolutely. you can't remember what was wrong with it. Right, so you just go with it because you're like, I have nothing else to lose at this point. You guys can probably sense there's this weird Attention. Sydney and I are just ready to rip into this topic and get fired up and it's you know it's gonna be tough we're gonna make it so our sources for today's podcast include ACLU the history of policing in the United States by Dr. Gary Potter Black Lives Matter, The Guardian, The Innocence Project, Al Jazeera, Prison Policy Initiative, This Bridge Called My Back by Sherry Moragana and Gloria and Zudua. Okay those were pronounced wrong I'm sorry I love you guys though. The Observer, the Fordham-Lincoln Center, Military Times, ArmyHistory.org, uh, My Foundations of Nursing Textbook, My Meds, Fundamentals of med Surgical Nursing for Care of Adults, Essentials of Psychiatric Nursing, and the Poetry Foundation, as well as our own two eyeballs and ears, as always. Yes, lots of really good resources there. Lots of intense titles, Rebecca. I'm going to give a little shout out because this is one of my favorite books I discovered it in college um, and some of my favorite authors. But if you love poems and essays by minority women and some ones that are a little more feminist focused than what we're going to talk about today, This Bridge Called My Back is an excellent resource. And so is Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, who is also one of my top fave favorite people. One of the ways that Rebecca and I have decided to build transitions into this diverse group of topics for today is to read poems and works by black writers and you will hear some of those recorded today. Uh, Rebecca and I both read three and then split one so you'll hear those breaking up the subject matter throughout the podcast. 
Rebecca, when we were talking about planning this episode, we said this is going to be a tough conversation, right? And it's going to be something that's really hard to fit into an hour. So we had to do some major condensing, some self-restraint on the research end, but we've picked the things that we're going to talk about because they are timely, but also because... We are speaking from a place of privilege. We're both white and we've both had a white experience in this world that is way more kind to white people than it is to people of color. Up front, we had already come to the conclusion that murder is always unacceptable, that there's no uh, reasoning for anyone to be killed by another person and that that's especially wrong and unacceptable when it happens through police brutality or when people who are supposed to be protecting others come out with aggression and power that isn't really part of their job. And that when that's used against a minority, it just reinforces systemic racism. And so we say that from a place of whiteness. Yes, absolutely. We're both white women. Um, you can't tell from the, the title of this episode, The Injustice System, which is how for probably the past year I've referred to the American justice system. This system was 100% designed to put down people of color. There is no fixing it. It's not broken. It's doing what it was designed to do. I do have white privilege. Fully acknowledge it. I'm a white woman. It's time to use that to make a change in the world and to talk about these things. And it just blows my mind that um, basically what's happened lately is a question of, can we stop being racist? And there's been a resounding no. And it's unacceptable. Um, So like Sydney said, we did a lot of editing about what we wanna talk about. But basically, if you are a person who feels differently and you don't wanna learn, click off. I'm always open to changing. I didn't always feel the way that I feel now about a lot of things. I'm always open to hearing new perspectives. And I know Sydney straight up feels the same way. So again, click off if you don't like what you're hearing. Yeah, I think there are a lot of times where there's room for discussion and gray area and there's nuance and things are on a spectrum. This is not one of those things. There's never an acceptable form of racism. There's never an excuse for racism. There's never a right time for that to be a thing. It's not an opinion. It's it's factually, objectively wrong. And so there's no argument for that. There are thousands of arguments against that. And that's what we're here to present today. And one of the things that we should open with is that we have done a little bit of censoring, uh, and Rebecca can clarify here in a minute, of vocabulary and things that are included in resources, particularly those that are historical or older. If we're using direct quotes, we've removed words that are inappropriate, objectively wrong to use, um, particularly things that we have called Black people throughout history, words that have been used by oppressors to to insult people for the way that they look. We had a, a brief conversation earlier that I think it's appropriate to open with. Uh, why should we say Black when we talk about Black people? And I'd like to open with this quote from an article by The Observer, which is the student newspaper at the Fordham Lincoln Center. Really excellent, really impressive student paper. I would recommend giving it a look. They essentially explain all African Americans are Black 
but not all black Americans are African Americans. That's their quote. And they go on to say, when someone calls a person African American, they assume that person has African lineage. Black with a capital B doesn't mean that those in the community wish to disconnect themselves from their past. They embrace it, but they want to be able to embrace the culture of their immediate ancestors, end quote. And I think if you sit in that for a minute and think about that, it's really us hundreds and hundreds of years later saying we are still recognizing black people as people that have been taken from African countries and and brought to the continental U.S. through the slave trade, that that's a remnant of ages past, but that it also doesn't recognize the people that are born here that are black as a typical American, which they are. Right? Your your skin color doesn't make you American. Being born in America or moving to and living in America makes you American. And so it's just one way that our system has tried to specify, hey, we see this person has American citizenship, but we aren't recognizing them as authentically American as we might a white American. You know, nobody looks at me and says, oh, she's a Dutch American. <laughs> I'm just white. And it's assumed that I am, you know, American through and through, and we don't afford our Black brothers and sisters the same courtesy. And that's just one way that language is is reflective of that. And, um, you know, Rebecca is going to mention some pieces, particularly historical quotes here in a bit, that use different words that we would never use today. But correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca, but I'm pretty sure we were saying earlier that the two, was it the 2010 census? Yes, it was. Had the word Negro on it. 2010. 10 years ago. 10 years ago. ago. 10, Ten years. years ago. For everyone that says that was so long ago. And I have plenty of, oof, getting fired up. I have plenty of how many years ago certain events happened for you guys. But 10 years ago. Think about where you were 10 years ago. Um, ideally, we were in a much better <laughs> place as a country. But um, just know that people were still being called Negroes by the U.S. government in 2010. And so now we have our 2020 census coming out. Things are finally hopefully going to change. And now the census is all, you know, it's been coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> you know, everything's going to have to change now a little bit. Um, and if you haven't done your census, do it online. It is shocking how recent some of these events that we're going to mention are. And I think it really helps put into perspective how much change occurred in such a short amount of time, but also how we failed to retain that change and how long people had to fight for it before it was ever made. So um, there are people fighting for change today in our streets. And the fact that it's taken this long to lead up to this moment, and there's still such a lag when it comes to the results is disturbing. Yes. And I just wanted to add, um, I was the one who asked, is it okay to say black? Because I really don't know. And I didn't know at the time. And um you know, you always want to be the best ally that you can. But at the, on the flip side, and I was just talking to a wonderful coworker um, about, about this, you know, it's not a person of color's job to teach you absolutely everything about being an ally. Th this answer was research that Sydney and I did and came up with. Um, because the thing is, you can always learn to be a better ally. Like, I really didn't say black until now because for, for some reason in my head, that was that was rude. Now, if someone said, please don't call me a black person, say African-American, I would, of course, 
adjust as common courtesy. I hate people that don't adjust when someone says, please don't call me that, or hey, my pronouns are this. Hey, don't call me black. Hey, I'm actually, you said African-American, but people can be from the Caribbean and be a black person as well. So saying African-American, it's, it's not correct. They may be okay with being called that, but you know, um, it was just a conversation we had. Um, and I just want to say, you know, you can always learn to be better. People can change. They just usually don't want to. I truly believe anyone can change. And let me say too, no one is expecting a complete 180 change overnight. I know the NFL just recently apologized for how it treated its players. And these people were on the news talking about the NFL is acting like they're completely fine now, but they have a lot of learning to do. You know, no one is expecting everything to change overnight and it won't but seeing the effort and making the effort to change either yourself or the system is is how you can be a good ally you can do research too on how to be a good ally but also that it's okay to be learning it's a learning um process like like we were talking about the quote sydney was talking about i've pulled some quotes they use the n-word which i will not say i will never say i'm just gonna say n-word in the quote um that exactly, just so you understand exactly how many times this word was said to these people. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, words to describe a lot of things that we used to use, like the um, use of the word retard is no longer acceptable, you know, things like that. I'm sure there's things that we're saying now that in 20 years will not be okay. You just need to adapt. You making the effort to adapt is part of being a good ally and a better person. Yes, absolutely. And it's like Rebecca said, that just has to be a commitment to change and a commitment to willingness to change. It's not gonna happen overnight. Being willing to be uncomfortable and experiencing discomfort um, as you do research and change and recognize things like you're in privilege or um, flawed learning that you've had because a lot of this behavior is learned and can be unlearned. And I think there's, a little bit of hope in that, right? There's an opportunity for education to change things drastically, but then it also has to come from a place of corrections voiced by the people that have been oppressed. And so I think we've done our best while collecting this data and doing this research to find sources by uh, Black people who are talking about their experiences or the experiences of um, their family and their ancestors. And for us, it can't just be, you know, blank from this American history textbook. It's got to be a really specific piece of information because things are so whitewashed. And, and so, you know, of course, nothing is perfect, but do know that we put in the effort to collect information that wasn't just the surface level information that's always circulated by um, the American education system. Absolutely. And as we've already said, and will continue to say, this system was built to oppress people of color. So these books, they circulate, the flyers, the way they present healthcare, everything you've learned um, in school is against them. It truly is. And that doesn't mean it's not your fault because you can change it. And if you can change it and you stand there and you're silent, you know, it's your fault as well at that point. But again, that doesn't mean you can't change it. That being said, we talked kind of about the history of the treatment of people of color. 
and we go through it and briefly talk about the war history because something I've noticed about World War One, World War Two, they're regarded as those people are the greatest generation. They saved us. Um, you know, World War Two is a hugely studied thing, major conflict. I mean, everyone knows who Hitler is. I want you to know that the African-American people fighting in that war were just as oppressed there and when they came home as they were when they left. So we talk a little bit about that. We don't focus a whole lot on the civil rights movement. Um, very important. We Maybe we can do a separate episode about that, but there's a lot of parallels between what happened during the World War One, World War II time and what's happening now that we kind of wanted to talk about, which is leading up to the civil rights movement, because our hope is that this is also leading up to another uh, civil rights movement. That I mean, that's truly our hope that things are really going to change. So yes, yeah, so we have brief history, and then we talk about some organizations and just more facts that maybe you didn't know. And then we address the police brutality, just to give you a little overview of what we're going to be talking about today. One more thing I think is really important to mention is that we're not covering all the bases of the ways that people of color have been oppressed. We're focusing specifically on the Black community. And during these times and a lot of these events that we're talking about, there were particular movements to disenfranchise Native Americans. Um, I mean, we could spend days talking about the American Revolution, but then also just colonial America and the ways that that traumatized and oppressed the Native American populations in the U.S. Um, We could talk about the ways that Hispanic populations have been murdered and forced into bondage and labor. And we could talk about concentration camps in the United States. There's the Korean War. There's the Vietnam War. Like there's so many wars in the American history where we only talk about heroic acts of white men and totally ignore all the horrors that came from that and from conflict and violence and on our own soil. And I think one of the big frameworks for me as I was doing my part of this research was, and I've seen this recently on social media in quite a few different places, but you know, when people talk about the Holocaust, they always say, why didn't Germans say something? Why didn't they speak up when they knew that it was happening? And there's this argument that like, oh, well, you know, secret, they didn't know. There were people who knew. There had to be people to be Nazis. You know what I mean? There are people who knew this was going on. And for us to sit by and ignore it is to be complicit in it. And this is the equivalent of that. So to watch people be murdered by their own system because of the color of their skin is the same as me sitting by and watching people be murdered for being Jewish or being um, a person with a disability or being a person of uh, Romney descent. There's no excuse for Uh, being complicit, but a lot of these stories that we're going to talk about throughout the history of the construction of this system are those of people who were apathetic to the situation that their um, Black brothers and sisters were in. And so it's just something to keep in mind as we're talking about this, that there were always points for intervention. There were always opportunities for people to step in and say, no, this is wrong. And there were people who did. And I am grateful for the work of abolitionists and people who supported liberation and, and emancipation. It's not enough to stop there. It is always the goal to achieve equality for all people 
just knowing that we've never fully arrived at that goal and that this is still an uphill climb, I can't imagine what this was like at every stage, but particularly that that's still the case now. This is Won't You Celebrate With Me by Lucille Clifton. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. We will start at the beginning, the very good place to start. There were several critical points in the history of when the American justice system was being constructed, but then also when the American police force was being constructed. And these kind of grew side by side, and a lot of the overlaps between the construction of the traditional American police force and then the problems that we still see in today's legal system go hand in hand. Early colonial American policing efforts consisted of community groups, commonly called the Watch, that were essentially volunteers who would take action when danger was near. So like old-timey neighborhood watch? Yeah, exactly. Old-timey neighborhood watch. Think kind of Paul Revere, like a guy on a horse who would ride through the village and say, um, a train has derailed, or there's a... The bank's been robbed. A band of robbers. Exactly. The bank's been robbed. They were volunteers. They were unpaid. They were just kind of your average Joe. Almost like if you have a volunteer fire department or something in your town, there are people that work other jobs that are also doing this on the side. The country didn't see any organized or paid policing leagues until the 1830s. The 1830s. So 1776 to the 1830s, there were no paid policing leagues. This was commonplace by the 1880s up in the north. So we're talking like original colonies, people are building villages and townships, and you've got kind of the Jamestown-esque setup. That's where we are starting to build an organized policing league. But in the south, as early as 1704, they had police efforts called slave patrols. So we're we're comparing 1704 in the south with slave patrols to the 1880s in the north. Over a century, almost two centuries of change here, Following the U.S. Civil War, which was 1861 to 1865, and the passing of the 13th Amendment in 1865, which abolished slavery, these patrols evolved to become Jim Crow enforcers. Even though Black people were legally free, quote-unquote, Jim Crow enforcers were harassing freed slaves, enforcing segregation and lynching, among other things. So just because on paper something was true didn't mean that in action, this was true. Police departments formally armed their officers only after officers had informally armed themselves. That's a quote from Dr. Gary Potter from Eastern Kentucky University and his work, The History of Policing in the United States, which is actually only about 20 pages long and you can find a free PDF on the internet. I I would give it a read. So at this point, they're paid, organized, uniformed, and armed. And this is right up to the First World War in 1914. Jim Crow segregation is firmly integrated into American society. There are stirrings of, hey, should we stop this? But they're kind of being squashed. 
Uh, that being said, when the war started and they needed volunteers and people were being drafted, there were many African-American men who were willing to go and fight out worldwide conflict. Felt patriotic, or they were hoping if they went and worked hard enough in this war, when they came back, they would be welcomed as full-fledged citizens and they would be revered the same way that they just knew the um, white soldiers would be. And I think that's so horrible that they were like, if I go and fight and possibly die in this war, when my brothers come back, maybe they will be treated as real people. Just let that sink in. All this information, by the way, comes from an article called Fighting for Respect, which is by Jamie L. Bryan, which is published on armyhistory.org. There were four all African-American regiments, the 9th, 10th Cavalry, and the 24th and 25th Cavalry. These were left over from the war, the previous wars, which is the like Spanish-American War, the Civil War, um, which had allowed African-Americans to fight be basically because it suited the government and they needed extra bodies. They weren't your like fighting combat soldiers. They were like support staff. They dug trenches. They cleared away trash. They did cooking. They weren't trusted with anything. But these men were heroes in their community, as they should have been outside of it. They were hated. The army at this time was, and throughout history, was uh, is more progressive than the other branches of the military, but they are still horribly racist. They had a quota on the number of African-Americans they were willing to accept. And prior to the war and the acceleration of it, because keep in mind, World War II, World War I, both get horribly desperate and they're willing to take anyone. They weren't on the draft. They have, not a lot of them were allowed to volunteer. You know, if you dodge the draft, you're a horrible person and they're going to take you to jail. So African-Americans were told to tear off the corner of their draft registration cards that they had to turn in so that they could easily be recognized and turned away or put in a support group position, which was like, again, digging trenches, cleaning toilets, maybe not even going to see combat. You're stuck in an airbase where everybody hates you. But something interesting that would happen was Southern postal workers would intentionally withhold the draft cards that had the corners ripped off of these black men, and they would be subsequently arrested for draft dodging, which is a heavy penalty, and it cripples your reputation. You weren't willing to fight for your country? What the heck? This is a world war. You know, the entire world's being invaded by Germany. There were black men who owned businesses or farms and had families. They were way more likely to be drafted than single white men. African-American men made up 10% of the population, but they were 13% of draft inductees. And that's purely the government being willing to kill black people over white people. The War Department eventually made in 1917, one year before the war ended, black combat units. So the phrase separate but equal is kind of like um, the phrase trickle down. And every time I hear it, I lose minutes off my life. So again, I've got interesting feedback. I like to say separate but unequal. So that's what I'm going to be saying, because that's the truth. So they made these separate but unequal training camps for black infantrymen and black officers. In 1917, De uh, Des Moines welcomed them and 1,250 men attended. So these people were so willing to fight and they were being turned away and treated like crap. Black draftees and volunteers were mistreated and many Southern civilian losers. That's what I wrote on my outline. Um, at the time when these black men were drafted in, they're at these training camps, which are still segregated by law. Um, doing all these things, the Southern people of America got really mad. And I want to tell you what they did, because a lot of these people to this day are saying that what's happening right now in our country is ineffective and horrible. These kind Southern people made some little signs. They went out, they blocked streets, they peacefully protested. And sometimes those protests turned into riots where they looted local stores and went crazy just trying to get their point across. That doesn't sound familiar, right? We've never, ever seen that in our lifetime. That would never bring about change. Except it did. The War Department ended up saying no more than one-fourth of trainees in any army camp could be African-American. You know, peaceful protest doesn't work. Yet, you know, it doesn't work for non-racist people, I guess, is what they're trying to say. 
It only works when it's for the things you believe in. And then if it's against your beliefs, it clearly can't work. It clearly can't. Obviously not. That would never work. Making signs, peacefully protesting. Ha, would you can't bully the War Department, except you totally could. And we are. I laugh in the face of the War Department. Kiss my butt. I have some general descriptions of what it was like for um, black infantrymen and the people in the support groups. Because again, it wasn't until much later in the war they actually sent some people into combat units and overseas and allowed them to be officers. I, again, I know I accidentally jumped the timeline um, around a little bit, but here's some descriptions of what they went through. So there were reports of black soldiers being forced to sleep outside in crappy tents or just outside while their white counterparts got really nice tents that were like sheltered from the uh, elements. Black soldiers being given old Civil War uniforms um, instead of real uniforms. They wouldn't be given changes of clothes for a long time. Um, in the winter, they would be forced to eat outside separately. And this wasn't everywhere, okay, but it did happen enough where there were reports of it. And it happening even once is unacceptable, but you know, it has to happen quite a few times for it to make it into, like, an article in a newspaper. Some of this is also from um, militarytimes.org. Uh, shout out to the National Army Cantonments. I probably said that wrong, though. But um, they actually gave their black soldiers nice stuff. Or at least it was on par with the white soldiers. Doing the bare minimum. <laughs> the bare minimum. And we have to say yay because the opposite was so horrible. <laughs> B.G. Charles C. Ballou, he was in charge of the 92nd Division, and when they finally allowed black people to be officers, he was the person who organized that first officer school and allowed them to attend, and then he was an officer himself in charge of 92nd Division, which when he was in charge of this division, um, either the army still wasn't desegregated or kind of like Sydney said earlier, even after the civil rights and they say everything has to desegregate, um, everybody took their sweet ass time about it. And, you know, cause they're like, well, we're doing it. So we're following the rules, but they haven't done it. So they're not following the rules. And that's kind of how the army was too. During that time period, no black officer was allowed to command a white one and army black men still could not serve next to white men. Training separately from their white counterparts is a big deal because it risks the cohesion and pride and the ability to work together. So this guy doing great things for his unit, you know, trying to get them where they wanted to go. And then um, enter Robert Bullard, who was a racist jerk who had a rivalry with our man. He spread lies and rumors about the 92nd, um, slandering them, calling them beasts. Uh, he got Alan G. Grieger, who was Baloo's chief of staff to sabotage the reputation of the unit. They would go to fancy meetings and uh, with higher ups and say horrible things. And um, the 92nd ended up being sent into a battle it never should have been in. The 93rd Division was kind of like 92nd, but it had much more military success, which helped their reputation because this jerk Robert was still spreading lies about them as well, but he really hated Charles Ballou. So as the war ended on November 11th, 1918 at 11 o'clock again, white racists across America pissed their pants at the thought of blacks coming home and demanding equality since they fought and bled for their country. You know, they might want to be treated like a person since they fought for this country. Um, and they were worried that they might possibly try and obtain this through the use of their military training. So when these men came home, there was an increase in racial tension, kind of similar to when the men came home from World War II and all the women had been working their jobs, they're like, give me my job back. And the women are like, no. Well, these uh, black men came home and were like, give me my rights. Hey, can, can I be treated like a person? And there was like a resounding no. And anti-black riots and looting erupted across the country in 26 different cities. And the lynching of African-Americans increased from 58% in 1918 to 77% in 1919. At least 10 of these victims were war veterans and some were lynched in their uniform. 
These men were lynched in the very uniform they fought and bled in for their country. Just let that sink in. This is a poem by Pat Parker. In English lit, they told me Kafka was good because he created the best nightmares ever. I think I should go find that professor and ask why we didn't study the San Francisco Police Department. The contribution of black people in World War II is grossly unknown, but I do know that the press called them tan soldiers. Sydney's rolling her eyes. My eyes are going to get stuck in the back of my head. Yeah. So 1940 hits. The war's going right. They're super desperate. They are like, we'll take anybody. So a lot of articles that I read said that these African-American soldiers felt like they were fighting a two-front war. The one against the Nazis and the, the access of evil and the racial war back home. Because when they left, the civil rights stuff was starting to heat up. And at that time, black newspapers had been drawing parallels between what Hitler was doing to the Jews and what was happening to them in America, which is totally valid. And remains valid. It remains valid, and they remain under the rug. You know, Sydney and I said that we liked war movies, and there are a bunch of documentaries. There's a bunch of real footage from World War II. There were like 16 million soldiers that fought from like the US in World War II, and there's a million of them were, were assumed to be people of color, mostly uh, black people. But when you look at all those hours and 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 hours of footage that they captured during that war, roughly 10 minutes of footage shows black people. Erased from a history of service. Erased. A million people erased and then lynched when they came home. Yeah. Um, and let me tell you, the army was still segregated. Everything was still segregated um, during that time. Um, but many of these people, super awesome. They got fired up during the war. They came home and fought in the civil rights movement. So basically, they fought for democracy abroad while being denied rights at home. I'm going to give some shout outs. The 320th Anti-Aircraft Barrage Balloon Battalion was entirely comprised of black infantrymen. They were present at Utah and Omaha beaches for the D-Day launch. So they would launch these balloons filled with like this explosive hydrogen gas that the German planes and stuff would run into to protect soldiers on the beach. They were the only black unit in France, that part of their unit, they're the first people to come ashore. That's amazing, right? They're super cool. I didn't know they existed until this moment. They've never once been featured in a history book that I've read, which I will admit is not many. They've been written out of American textbooks. Written out, just pieced out of textbooks that we use to teach people objective facts. Yep. And I've been to almost every World War II museum on the planet. There's an amazing one in New Orleans. I can't remember if they're mentioned. The 761st Tank Battalion. I think these guys are the cat's meow. <laughs> That's a pun you'll find out. Still, by law, they could not serve next to white troops. They had to drive their tanks away from white tanks. They drove Panther tanks. Their names, they called themselves the Black Panthers. And their motto was come out fighting. And they have an amazing crest that I think we'll post on our Instagram yes. um, of a panther. And it says come out fighting. I love that. Um, come out fighting. Fired up. Ready to go. Amazing. They were considered one of, if not the most successful tank unit in the war. And I had never heard of them. And I bet you haven't either. Maybe you have. I don't know. I, you know, I'm not going to say what you have or haven't read. None of my textbooks have ever mentioned them. I can say that with confidence. I was going to say, Rebecca and I have textbooks from the South, so we may have had a different 
textbook experience. <laughs> yeah, your northern ones may be different, but down here in the south. This group you probably have heard of, the Tuskegee Airmen, a um, little more well-known first group of airmen. Um, there was also, shout out to the 32nd fighter group, the 301st, the 302. Um, they were the first groups. Um, some of them were the first groups to fly at certain battles. Um, but I just wanted to say that Black people were present at every major World War II battle. They were in the Pacific Theater. They were there at D-Day, as we just talked about. They were there to take back Germany. Um, they were on foreign soil when the war was won. And I, honest to God, didn't know that. And that's just not okay. So what was it like back home for them at bases? Um, everywhere they went, they were confronted with discrimination in the army and bases. God forbid they were stationed on a base in, guess what, the South. So I wanted to real quick talk about Lieutenant Jackie Robinson. He's the baseball player, too. He's a rock star. There's a really good movie called 42 that's named after him, which is his baseball number. It's so good. It's so good. I'm, I hate baseball, and it's so good. In 1944, he was at Camp Hood. He got on a bus and sat next to a white lady who was some general's wife. We don't care about her or her family. And um, the bus driver said, go to the back. My man looked at him and said, I think you should tend to driving. That's a direct quote. They basically fought the whole way uh, to wherever they were going. It ended up getting him general court-martialed. And I just wanted to highlight that instance. And then he later on went to campaign for black people getting into sports. And then he was an awesome baseball player. But I liked that he had this, like, can-do attitude from the beginning. Um, because I can't imagine being stationed at an airbase, especially one in Mississippi, which is where this quote um, from, it, uh, it just said from black soldiers, it's from the History Channel article. So this is the one that I have censored. It does use the word Negro, which I really hate, but I have censored the N-word because I'm never going to say that. So this was in 1942, which is not that long ago. That's 78 years ago. We are treated like wild animals, like we are inhuman. The word Negro is never used here. All we hear is N-word this, N-word that. Even officers call us N-word. Anywhere in this country is fair game for racism as long as there are white people living in those places and there are white people in every place in this country <coughs> Ooh, i kind of choked on that one the spirit of georgia is coming to choke me john wilkes just like <laughs> the racist you spirit by the throat. georgia is coming to joke he's like how dare you <laughs> how dare you say such things about his style. hand came from the grave I have a lot of opinions, and if you're from Alabama, I'm not saying you're a bad person, or that you're stupid, or that you hate women, or... I'm gonna stop talking. I don't hate people from Alabama. I might. 72 years ago, in 1948, after World War II, uh, President Truman signed an executive order desegregating the military. But kind of like the rest of the country, it didn't actually desegregate until later, and that happened in the Korean War in 1950. Thank you, Rebecca, for that thorough and interesting but deeply disturbing history of war as it relates to the criminal justice system, the way that we serve veterans, the way that our country has treated Black people who have offered their lives and services for those around them. We are so humbled by this history and also shocked at how far under the rug it's been pushed and continues to be pushed. And so this right here is kind of a plug for you if you're an educator and you have the opportunity, especially if you're an elementary educator or a parent with children, 
make a point to diversify the history that you present them with. Make a point to tell stories written by Black people. Make sure to provide history written by Black people. The history that white America has written for them is America's white history of oppressing them. And it's insufficient and it only reinforces racism. So just like we're doing where we did this research and read up on these things, we encourage you to read up on these things as well. This poem is Power by Audre Lorde. The difference between poetry and rhetoric is being ready to kill yourself instead of your children. I am trapped on a desert of raw gunshot wounds and a dead child dragging his shattered black face off the edge of my sleep. Blood from his punctured cheeks and shoulders is the only liquid for miles, and my stomach churns at the imagined taste while my mouth splits into dry lips without loyalty or reason, thirsting for the wetness of his blood as it sinks into the whiteness of the desert where I am lost, without imagery or magic, trying to make power out of hatred and destruction, trying to heal my dying son with kisses, only the sun will bleach his bones quicker. A policeman who shot down a ten-year-old in Queens stood over the boy with his cop shoes and childish blood, and a voice said, Die, you little motherfucker, and there are tapes to prove it. At his trial, this policeman said, in his own defense, I didn't notice the size nor nothing else, only the color. And there are tapes to prove that, too. Today, that 37-year-old white man with 13 years of police forcing was set free by 11 white men who said they were satisfied justice had been done and one black woman who said they convinced me, meaning they had dragged her four foot ten black woman's frame over the hot coals of four centuries of white male approval until she let go, the first real power she ever had, and lined her own womb with cement to make a graveyard for our children. I have not been able to touch the destruction within me, but unless I learn to use the difference between poetry and rhetoric, my power too will run corrupt as poisonous mold, or lie limp and useless as an unconnected wire. And one day, I will take my teenaged plug and connect it to the nearest socket, raping an 85-year-old white woman who is somebody's mother, and as I beat her senseless and set a torch to her bed, a Greek chorus will sing in 3-4 time, Poor thing, she never heard a soul. What beasts they are. So just like we talked about war earlier, we're bringing it to present day battles that are happening on the streets right outside our houses throughout the country. In the middle of a coronavirus quarantine, people have decided that they are willing to go out and protest and be present because they know that it's important to show up, even at their own risk sometimes. One major movement that's going on right now and has been going on in the last decade is that of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'd like to read their founding statement and their mission statement from their website, which is blacklivesmatter.com, because I think this is the best introduction we can give you to them and their movement. Hopefully you're familiar, but these are their words. Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer. Black Lives Matter Foundation Incorporated is a global organization in the U.S., U.K., and Canada whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy, 
and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation, and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives. They've advocated for the lives of black people on a national and international scale, with a heavy emphasis on deaths caused by police brutality, incarceration, and negligence in other parts of the justice system. I think most of you are probably listening to this in 2020. I doubt anybody's going to go back and listen to this in the next couple of years, right? But right now, Black Lives Matter is protesting the deaths of George Floyd, who had a police officer kneel on his neck um, until he died. Breonna Taylor, who was shot in her own home while she was sleeping, while police performed a a no-knock warrant search of a home. And countless others who were murdered for being Black. Ahmaud Arbery, who was jogging and lynched in 2020 by white men in 2020. This is what we're still arguing about. There is no argument against what the Black Lives Matter movement stands for. These protests are a continuation of the original civil rights movements, but they're also a reflection of America in 2020 that has had years to evolve and regressed instead. A lot of it has to do with the current presidential administration allowing rhetoric about race and white supremacy to be at the forefront. A president who is a white supremacist is allowed to speak things over the lives of black people that make it okay for Americans to echo them. As much progress as was made towards racial reconciliation under the Obama administration, I think a lot of that work has been undone in just a short three to four year span. While these protests seem immediate, they are a reflection of years and years of lost progress at the hands of people in power who are not advocates for all people. And in a bunch of these cases, police were the murderers. And we could have a whole separate conversation about gun violence and weaponry and militarized police. But the fact is, regardless of what they used, police have been given power and force and the tools that they need to kill people with or without cause. This is I Too by Langston Hughes. I too sing America. I and the darker brother, they send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody'll dare say to me, eat in the kitchen, then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. So, Rebecca, would you tell us a little bit about some of the protests that have happened recently? Protests in America, um, across our country, even it's my community, my direct community, is very small. They still had a protest. Uh, mainly old people live in the town that I live in, and they all came out, and it was beautiful. Um, and they had a second one in the neighboring town. Um, across the country, across the world, in London and in Paris... And that's amazing. You know, I mean, there's systemic racism everywhere. It's just more 
obvious in America. Um, and But I loved that people took up this cause and they're like, we want it to change in America and we want to change it here. Like, that's beautiful. D.C., um, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, Tulsa. It's a pretty interesting array of cities I just chose. Um, those are the ones I've seen in the newspapers. Um, they're having protests, you know, daily, every day since um, George Floyd was murdered. Um, and that's amazing. And I saw a really interesting Facebook no, it wasn't Facebook. I think it was just on my news feed talking about the Black Lives Matter Plaza in DC with the uh, spray, or it's probably not spray paint, but the paint on the ground saying Black Lives Matter and then now defund the police, which I thought was beautiful. Except when you think about all the places named Martin Luther King Boulevard or road or street, which became... Gentrified. Gentrified, yes. That's the word I was looking for. You know, the new word for segregated. Yeah. Gentrif- gentrification is modern segregation and oppression through poverty. Yeah, you know, and they did that on purpose. And that was a wonderful gesture, but unless they back it up, it's empty. Yep. And, you know, sitting there talking all this talk, we're doing everything we can. You know, I know money's tight for a lot of people, but if you can donate, donate. Or even just if someone at your work tells a racist joke, shut it down. Be like, why do you think that's funny? You know, doing little things like that. That's how you be an ally. That's how you help. Because I know that with coronavirus going on, like, I don't have any extra money right now. I'm, you know, I'm facing getting laid off just like many people are. And, you know, it's tough. But there's still things um, that you can do. You can go to protests, you know, um, which is what I'm supposed to be talking about. Sorry, it was a nice side story. Um, Something that's been very prevalent from these protests and these, I've gotten this information from the Boston News, New York Times, even my local newspaper uh, ran a thing about it, um, is the continued police brutality. These protests are literally about racism and police brutality and racist police brutality. Um, you know, the whole whole shebang. Cops shouldn't be killing anybody. You know, I love when people are like, not all cops. Okay, that's probably true. Not all cops do that. But the ones who do don't get punished, which creates more cops who do that. It's like, you know, I work in surgery, right? The surgeon consistently killed people because he sucked at his job or you know, God forbid he enjoyed killing people on the table, he wouldn't be allowed to practice. He wouldn't. And no one would be like, not all surgeons, you know, that makes them question the other surgeons. You know, are these people good? You know, did they pick up anything from him? Um, So, but the continued police brutality, they're not like understanding the premise. Can you imagine that horrifying feeling? And people who are like, well, that's just the police chokehold. You have to understand what that, you know, have some empathy understand what these protesters that are also being attacked feel like. And I understand, yes, they're yelling in the face of policemen. I'm a healthcare professional. Not all patients are nice to me. I've been yelled, I've been spit on, I've been pushed. Um, You know, nurses can wrangle a combative patient. And the number one rule of dealing with combative patient is, it doesn't matter if they punch you in the face, you can't allow any harm to come to them. And I do not understand why the police are not held to the same standard. I can't choke hold a combative patient. I also cannot just inject them with a chemical restraint and cause them to go limp. Restraints are a last, you know, option in the hospital. But, you know, if one little nurse can do that, why can't this armed policeman who's in riot gear do it? You don't have to choke people. You don't have to choke people. You You never have to choke people. No. No. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to or should. There's so many alternatives. It's like Rebecca saying, there are ways to get the same effect without causing harm. And just saying, this is the way we've always done it, or this is what I was trained to do, doesn't make it right. And that means it has, you either have to fix the training, which is a major issue, 
for policing or don't do that job if you can't do it without causing harm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the difference between being annoyed, mildly harassed, and in fear of your life. If I'm a nurse wrangling a patient, they're cussing at me, calling me bad names. However, is that patient or that protester harming me? They're yelling at me. They're allowed to yell at me. Well, they're not supposed to, but you know what I mean. They're allowed to yell at the police. They're saying things. Is that going to hurt them? Is this patient yelling at me going to put my life in danger? Absolutely not. They have to be able to recognize danger from annoyance. I'm annoyed that this patient is yelling at me. I'm not going to choke them out. This protester is yelling in their face. You know, they're, maybe they're threatening. I, I highly doubt it. Maybe they're just saying, you killed him, you know. The thing is, if, you know, if, if someone's attacking you, like if that patient were to grab and put me in a chokehold, I'm then allowed to fight back, right? Your life is in danger. If these protesters grab this policeman and start choking him to death, of course he's going to fight back. However, walking down the street after curfew, maybe you're headed in the direction of your house or, you know, you're telling the police, like, you're not allowed to tackle someone. No justice, no peace. That's what it was, yeah. Hands up, don't shoot. Oh, God. This is Caged Bird by Maya Angelou. A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze, and the trade wind soft through the sighing trees, and the fat worms waiting on the dawn bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams, his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream, his wings are clipped and his feet are tied so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom. You're not allowed to attack someone for yelling at you. That's, that's that law applies to everyone. The police are not supposed to be above the law. No one is supposed to be above the law. Okay, let's, let's remember that here. Don't let anyone tell you you're allowed to attack someone for yelling at you. But something specific I wanted to address, which came from the Boston, uh, I think it was just bostonnews.com, um, talking about the 75-year-old man. Um, and I've watched the video and it's sickening. They push him. And, you know, I deal in, I work in surgery. I've seen tons of head injuries and, you know, brain surgeries and they're horrifying. But um, this man, you know, he's pushed, he he trips, he falls, and you, just the sound of his head hitting the ground will stay with me for the rest of my life. And the limp way he lays there tells you that something serious has happened to him. I mean, as a healthcare professional, my heart stopped. I was like, there's something seriously wrong with him. He's bleeding profusely. Uh, craniotomy is in his future. You know, I'm horrified. And one of the cops um, does appear to be freaked out that this happens, and he reaches forward to like try and help the man and his buddy, the guy who pushed him, grabs the other cop and pulls him away and is like, no, we're gonna you know, radio it in. He radios in, they're talking about it. Um, let me just say, when people say not all cops, if it really was, you know, not all cops, I acknowledge there's cops out there that don't do it, but if it truly was, it's only like five people that are bad. That guy who got pulled back would have said, F you dude, and gone and helped the old man anyway. But instead, tens of police officers just walk by this limp body. The guy kind of looks dead. 
and they just walk by and there's protesters trying to come help him and they're pushing those people down. I'm like, are you going to bust their head open too? You know, that's just not okay. So anyway, the police department did suspend, which they should be fired. But then 57 assholes, this is what I wrote on my outline, um, stepped down. Not because they're like, this old man was pushed. I can't be a police officer anymore. I can't be harassing these protesters anymore. They stepped down because their buddies got suspended. They think that was perfectly okay. And I know there's arguments that he tripped. Yes, he tripped because he was shoved. And even if he tripped, their job is to serve and protect. Shouldn't they have helped him regardless? The police should help you regardless of your age, gender, your race. If you're in trouble, their job is to help you. Even if you're a criminal who's injured, they're supposed to take you to the hospital where healthcare providers, regardless of any of those things I just mentioned, are supposed to help you. Literally, taking care of, we have taken care of murderers and given them the best care we can because that's our professional job. And the police should behave the same way. There's also been instances of infiltration by racist group, like white supremacy groups. The KKK is still legal in 2020. You're allowed to be in the KKK in 2020. But there's been instances of those people infiltrating uh, protesters, inciting violence or being looters and stuff. And then there's the cops inciting violence and beating the absolute crap out of people, which is not okay. Well, I mean, you've seen pictures too of rubber bullets. Which can kill you. They can kill you. Those flashbang canisters that go off. I mean, I mean, tear gas. I've seen, I've seen all sorts of stuff in the news and on social media, pictures of people being attacked for peacefully protesting. Which is a right, you know, just like the right to bear arms and the right to be a jerk, basically. You're allowed the freedom of speech, peaceful protest, you know, they did it. Were they arrested? Were they shot for bullets? I don't think so. All right. They weren't. So it's it's sickening. So the change needs to happen with within the police force for sure. I don't know what that would look like. Again, the whole system's messed up. You can't fix a system that was designed to be doing this. You just have to replace it. Um, but Sydney, what can you tell us about um, the concept of defunding the police? Because I really don't know what that means or what that would look like. Initially, when I saw, I, I want to say it was about a week ago, I started to see things crop up about defunding police. My initial thought was that that means to disband the police so that they just don't exist anymore, which actually is not at all what that means. To disband the police would be to close up shop, say you're out of a job, we don't have a police force anymore. To defund the police literally means you stop funding the police the way that you're funding them now. So defunding looks like money funneled into police departments, being redirected to social services like social workers, libraries, health counseling, medical services, anything that you could receive as a social service the money would go to that as opposed to paying for and equipping militarized police bodies with a ridiculous sum of money. Okay, I, I have a quick question. Um, is this anything like when they cut the funding for uh, schools, public roads, and like public health programs and put it into congressmen's pockets? Is that kind of, but instead of congressmen's pockets, it goes to actual services? Is that what you're talking about? Exactly, yeah. It's it's exactly that, Rebecca. It's exactly the nice. same thing as cutting funding to arts and schools. It's the exact same thing as paying teachers like $2 a year. It's that. Except... 
in reverse. (laughs) So an analysis from The Guardian indicates that the U.S. currently spends get this, 115 billion U.S. dollars on police every year. That is 115 B as in boy, billion, not million, billion dollars every year, which is more than the budget they have to spend on the police. They're literally outspending the budget. And this number is climbing and has been climbing for the last four decades, even though the crime rate is dropping. We are spending more on police and militarizing and equipping police to be aggressive and to have tools and weaponry to keep doing what they're doing, even though less crime is happening. How does that work? Where does the money go? Well, let me tell you where it's not going. It is not going to testing rape kits. There are still rape kit backlogs all throughout the U.S. For example, in... 2015, The Guardian released an article about the rape kit backlog in the U.S. In Salt Lake City, 222 of the 942 kits collected between 2004 and 2014 were destroyed. Of those, 59 were tested and went to court. 59 tested of 942 and went to court, which means not just prosecution, but that it was even considered for prosecution. 59 from 2004 to 2014, that's 10 years, almost a thousand kits, 59 of a thousand kits tested and go to court in Salt Lake City. I'm appalled. In Hamilton County, Tennessee, sheriff's employees destroyed rape kits with marijuana and cocaine from drug busts as if they were paraphernalia that had been taken from a criminal and the local prosecutor said they were not consulted that these were just destroyed, which means it voids the entire case. So any DNA evidence that you could have collected, even though there's no statute of limitations on that evidence, is gone. In Kentucky, the state auditor discovers some police departments routinely destroy these kits after a year, one year. Even though the state had no statute of limitations for rape, the perpetrators could have been prosecuted as long as they were alive. As long as they're alive. You think of the Golden State Killer. Years and years later, justice for dozens of women. He wouldn't hazard a guess at how many kits had been destroyed by police. They didn't even know roughly how many kits there were. There were that many. None of them tested. None of them go into the database. And as a side note on DNA, I feel very strongly about CODIS and collecting DNA from people. Rebecca may disagree, (laughs) but I think we need to start... Oh no, take the DNA. Take all of it. we need to start collecting DNA from every single person when they're born in the U.S. and putting it into a database. Because we can't retroactively collect DNA on people. We need to avoid just collecting DNA on people of color or just collecting DNA on women or just collecting DNA on people of a certain wealth threshold. But if we started doing it uniformly for children, they would grow into a system where CODIS is possible for everyone, which means that Everyone's DNA is in the system, so you can test it. Not only could you find perhaps maybe ancestry links that you need or DNA indicators for certain diseases, but if you're going to commit a crime later on down the road, you're going to know that your DNA is in the system. That's just my soapbox for the day. (laughs) That's just one example of how the police system... It's not doing their job. Is, yes, is doing an inadequate job... 
but that has been swept under the rug. I'm sorry, I'm still dying at this DNA sidetrack. I'm I'm intense (laughs) about DNA. But that's just one instance of non-policing activity. So non-hands-on civilians, non-going-to-the-scene activity in which there is money being funneled to a service that is not being delivered. One. And it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that do not get justice for their assault. Absolutely. Disgusting. Because people are too lazy to do the test, because people are more willing to get rid of the kits, and it's inexcusable. Gun violence in America is also a nightmare. Police killings, sadly, are going to be put into perspective here. I did a little international research just for some scaled back 10,000 foot view approach. There were 59 fatal police shootings in the U.S. between January 1st and 24th of 2015. 59 fatal police shootings. So these aren't just Americans shooting each other. These are police shooting civilians. According to data collected by the UK advocacy group Inquest, there have been 55 fatal police shootings total. Police shooting civilians in England and Wales from 1990 to 2014. 55 from 1990 to 2014. There were 59 in the first 24 days of 2015 alone. Iceland has had one fatal police shooting in which a police officer shot a civilian in the history of the nation as of 2015. They're over 70 years old. Official intentional homicide rate is so slow that it does not register in the World Bank data on intentional homicides per 100,000 people. For the U.S., the rate is five intentional homicides per 100,000 people. And can I just add real quick, um, I just looked this up from the Washington Post, who does a good job of keeping track of... um, police killings and they have a very good list of all the names in 2019 in america alone and this is across everything i don't it doesn't give any demographics other than people 1003 people were shot and killed in 2019 by the police people who are meant to protect civilians killing civilians the number of police killings in the u.s disproportionately affects african americans this is important Despite only making up 13% of the U.S. population, Black Americans are two and a half times as likely as white Americans to be killed by the police. 13% of the U.S. population with two and a half times the likelihood that they will be killed by a police officer. Police officers alone, not other Americans, not people that... President Tiny Hands thinks are coming into the country to kill people, police officers, American police officers, why are we funding police services who are not doing their job? There's no argument for this other than that systemic racism allows this to happen. People allow this to happen and keep happening because it doesn't stir something in them. They don't they don't feel any sort of discomfort with that. There are enough people in America that are comfortable with these statistics that this is the way that things are. And that should be deeply disturbing to anyone anywhere. Yeah. And if you're saying not all police, you know what you're saying? You're okay with a thousand and three people being murdered. Regardless, if you commit a crime, that does not give the police the right to kill you. Know your rights, right? That's one of our things. Yeah, know your rights. That's a little bit about the police. Um, I know not every single police officer 
is this way. There's a bad thing in every bunch, but that's a lot of bad things. And I love all the police departments that have spoken out against this and have said, we would not tolerate this. You know, that's amazing. Stand up to it. If it happens in your community and you're one of those police departments, fire them, condemn them, you know? I would encourage you, if you're listening, to watch John Oliver's episode on police brutality in which he makes a really important point. Firstly, he's hilarious and just so good, but he does a lot of really excellent research and he makes this point so well. The argument that not all cops are bad, like there are a few bad apples, leaves out the part of the saying in which a few bad apples spoil the barrel. And so if you're arguing blue lives matter, there are no blue lives. There are white men and men of other ethnicities employed as cops as a job. So those are people who have a job to be a cop. They either do it well or they don't, and it's not acceptable for them to do it poorly because of the amount and power and authority and force that they're allowed to use to do their job. And it's the same thing that Rebecca was saying about surgeons. You would never say, it's okay that there are a few bad surgeons, the rest of them are fine. You would never say, it's okay that there are a few lawyers who don't have law degrees that are practicing law, the rest are fine. You cannot make that excuse for police officers. There is no reason, even though we have a tremendous amount of respect, typically, for our first responders, there's no reason that you can make excuses for some on the account of others doing their job well. It's it's all or nothing. And if there are police in departments allowed to do their jobs poorly, the whole department has failed. This is an excerpt from Kate Russian's poem, The Bridge Poem, featured in the book, This Bridge Called My Back. Forget it, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of filling in your gaps, sick of being your insurance against the isolation of your self-imposed limitations, sick of being the crazy at your holiday dinners, sick of being the odd one at your Sunday brunches, sick of being the sole black friend to 34 individual white people. Find another connection to the rest of the world. Find something else to make you legitimate. Find some other way to be political and hip. I will not be the bridge to your womanhood, your manhood, your humanness. I'm sick of reminding you not to close off tight for too long. I'm sick of meditating with your worst self on behalf of your better selves. I am sick of having to remind you to breathe before you suffocate your own fool self. Forget it, stretch or drown, evolve or die. The bridge I must be is the bridge to my own power. I must translate my own fears, meditate my own weakness. I must be the bridge to nowhere but my true self and then I will be useful. Speaking of healthcare professionals being held to a higher standard, can we talk about health disparities in the system for people of color? I would love to. This is something that has been impressed upon me throughout the me obtaining my first degree, but especially in working towards the second one. Um, every time you know, we're, I'm tested over uh, diseases and who's more at risk for them, do you want to know, um, except for I think stroke, which is white men and aneurysms too, because all that racism just really rots, you know, racism and oppression of everyone else that's not a white man really eats away at your um, vasculature. I know what you're thinking, not all white men, but again, the bad apples spoil the barrel. 
every time I have to say who's the most at-risk population, it is a main is it a main it, uh, it is a minority population. It's usually African Americans. Sometimes it's Hispanics, and sometimes it's Native Americans or Pacific Islanders um, or Asian Americans. But every time, it is a minority. I mean, very rarely is it truly a white person. Um, and I'm talking about they're far more likely to develop and die from diabetes, heart disease, cancer, serious respiratory infections, uh, dementia, basically everything that you would never want a doctor to tell you you have. They are at much higher risk. Um, and this is information not only from my textbooks, but from the CDC website as well. These disparities, because, you know, disparity is, um, you know, is what this is referred to as, um, they cause a lower mean life expectancy compared to white people. And it's not equally spread out among the minorities. And usually the women of every minority um, or every ethnicity, I'm sorry, are affected greater than the men usually. I just did a big chapter on diabetes and that's fresh in my mind how the African-American population is more likely to get diabetes. Um, this is multifactorial. It's very hard for people of color to um, get good jobs because of racism and get um, education. And they tend to live, not, you know, 10, but a lot of them are, you know, gentrified, segregated. Um, in poor neighborhoods, poverty neighborhoods, that they may be far from a hospital or far from a good hospital. Um, they may not be able to afford health care. I mean, who really can? Let's be real. It's a separate argument. But, um, you know, or the education to get a better job. And then when they go to the hospital, are they going to experience systemic racism in the hospital? Or even if not racism, are they going to get culturally competent care which I'm very happy to say is a big part of what my program focuses on, but how serious people take it is, you know, up to the person taking the course. Are they going to be allowed to practice whatever they practice in the healthcare setting? They're supposed to be allowed to, this treatment is against their religion or their culture. Uh, they're supposed to be allowed to say, hey, I don't, I don't want this. They, their culture is supposed to be incorporated into their care. They may not be able to afford a gym. They may not have access to a gym. There may not be one near their neighborhood and they're not going to want to drive 40 minutes across the city to go in the gym. It may not be safe for them to jog in their neighborhood because the policemen may come and shoot them. And they may not, again, have access to education to get out of that environment, you know, to build up. Because if they apply to the same job a white person applies to, they're not going to get it. You know, unless there's some sort of diversity initiative at that place and they're like, we haven't met our quota of black people yet, so we're going to hire this guy, you know, and that, that's very real. I'm not being dramatic. The truth of the matter is, um, you know, we're focusing this episode on African-Americans. They have higher rate of um, birth defects, fetal death, which as a first world country, we have just overall startling amount of fetal and maternal death. But for that population specifically, it's incredibly high for both baby and mom. And it's unacceptable. And it's purely because either the people were racist or um, maybe, again, they didn't have access to a good hospital. Maybe they couldn't afford to go to the hospital at all. There's also something called food deserts, areas where there's really only like fast food available and they don't really have good access to fresh produce. Or if the price of an apple is $7, you know, you have to, you have to get more than one apple. And then, you know, a McDonald's meal is five and you're super tight on money. What choice are you going to make? You know, you're going to buy the Big Mac, which I know a Big Mac is, you know, they've really inflated their prices. I know it's not $5. You know, there's a little circle of life with people in those neighborhoods that they live and die in a poverty poor neighborhood. And that was a created circle. There's no reason anyone in America, A, should be poor, and B, not have good access to healthcare. However, 
these people are in danger. Um, they have a lower life expectancy by quite a bit. The healthcare system, which is meant to keep you alive and well, the policing system, which is meant to protect your life and keep you safe, and then heaven forbid you get into trouble of some kind, or maybe you don't and you're accused of it, the legal system is supposed to protect you and it is still failing black people in 2020. The system is built this way. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, the things it's built to do, which is to oppress people of color. And there's nothing that is more evident than the number of people in America that are people of color that are incarcerated. Of 329 exonerations aided by the Innocence Project, roughly 70% were people of color. 62% of the total number of people are black. So the disproportionate rate of wrongfully convicted African Americans correlates strongly with the overall incarceration rate of, get this, 2,207 per 100,000 people in that group. The Death Penalty, the Innocence Project, um, incredible work overall, firstly, protecting people that have been wrongfully convicted for all sorts of crimes or minor crimes that have given them uh, intense sentences. Over 60% of people on death row right now are people of color, and many of them are innocent or had a minor crime that was then escalated to a felony. While we will save the conversation about the death penalty for another time, it's important to note right now because it reflects the disparities in the concentration of people of color in America and the concentration of people of color in American prisons and the fact that they're facing more severe charges than their white counterparts. The last piece that wraps all of this together is the idea of false confession. Uh, the Innocence Project says that minors are especially vulnerable to falsely confessing to crimes that they didn't commit. This isn't just an issue owed to arrest and incarceration in a racist system, but the disservices that the legal system does for the wrongfully convicted beyond policing and into prosecution. There are f faulty plea bargains that go through. The list goes on and on and on. But the fact is, the legal system does not serve people who get into trouble, that are put into trouble because of their skin, that have been living in poverty and and struggling their whole lives because of it. And frankly, it's like Rebecca said, it's the circle of life. But in every sense of the word, the system is working against you. Yeah, 100%. You know, and yeah, we will definitely talk about the death penalty. I have high hopes for this trial of this police officer. He's going to get locked away for a good time. But I uh, historically, I have my doubts that justice will be. There's a lot of pressure, so maybe they will do the right thing. But just know if they do, it's because they're pressured. We do have an offering of resources. Some films, documentaries, and TV shows that highlight the plight of Black people in America throughout history that we would like to recommend, among many others, are Just Mercy, The Innocence Files, 13th, Moonlight, The Hate You Give, Dear White People, and When They See Us. Some books, if you'd rather read, um, books on anti-racism and white privilege, as well as books by Black authors who have shared parts of their experience. Um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, 
Becoming by Michelle Obama. Sorry, I like her. Um, I'm sure I like all these other people too, but Michelle Obama. Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds, adapted from Kendi. Uh, this Bridge Called My Back by Sherry Morag uh, and Gloria Andazula. Here I go again, saying their names wrong. A great book. That's an anthology. Uh, it's really good. Sorry. And then some of our other favorite Black creatives to support a very short selection of a very long list. Uh, Joy Alodakun, who Rebecca and I saw together in concert. She's a singer. We got to meet her. Yes. She's so sweet. Yes. Um, Nicholas Smith, who is a visual artist. Amina Brown, who is a spoken word artist. Rudy Francisco, poet and spoken word artist. And then Morgan Harper Nichols, who is an artist and writer. Yes. I'd like to add Audrey Lord to that. Um, read her stuff. It's very good. Very unique perspective from her. You know, just watching these things has to move you. I watched 13th as an assignment for my sociology class when I was getting my first degree and is very moving. Exactly. Everything comes back around and my hope is that that's also true of justice and I think we'll find out soon enough what's going to come of this new um, wave of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's definitely the most encouraging one I think we've seen in a long time. Typically, people raise their voices and then things fizzle out. But I think this has been the longest protest that we've seen in a while. I'm hopeful that it's enough to get the ball rolling on change, but we've got a lot of work to do. We have decided this week to forego our fun question of the week for the sake of um, maintaining the tone of this episode. So in place of our fun question of the week, we have decided to read another work by a Black artist. Pat Parker. The first thing you do is to forget that I'm Black. Second, you must never forget that I'm Black. You should be able to dig Aretha, but don't play her every time I come over. And if you decide to play Beethoven, don't tell me his life story. They made us take music appreciation too. Eat soul food if you like it, but don't expect me to locate your restaurants or cook it for you. And if some black person insults you, mugs you, rapes your sister, rapes you, rips your house, or is just being an ass, please do not apologize to me for wanting to do them bodily harm. It makes me wonder if you're foolish. And even if you really believe blacks are better lovers than whites, don't tell me. I start thinking of charging stud fees. In other words, if you really want to be my friend, don't make a labor of it. I'm lazy, remember. Until next time, good people, Black Lives Matter, and do your research. Yes, good people, be well, do great. We'll be posting um, things you can do, links to Black Lives Matter that you can donate to. Um, I'm sure I can find George Floyd's GoFundMe page. Um, Yeah, and don't be afraid just to look up your local chapters of stuff and do things within your community because I know that if you're like a person who's also kind of poor and short on money and just chilling, you know, you can't fly to D.C. and try and set the White House on fire or anything, um, which no one would ever do, except for those people that did it a long time ago. Um, But there are things within your community you can do. Okay, it's not hopeless. Small change is big change. So 
vote vote write in you know um learn until then be strong be good do great all the things goodbye good people Au revoir.